Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up, everybody? We've got Alan Burgo, the Forger Chef, on the podcast today. Alan, nice to see you. How are things in Minnesota today? I'm good. Nice to see you, too. And, yeah, it's been busy working on this project that popped up with uh, these proposed DNR regulations on mushroom hunting in Minnesota, my state, where I do most of my work, most of my mushroom picking. Well, let's jump right into it because your tag is the Forager Chef. That's who you're known as. So obviously foraging is a huge part of that and you're experienced and respectful and you've built a career around foraging wild foods, including many wild mushrooms. And now it's my understanding that the powers that be are trying to enforce increased regulation over limits to how many mushrooms you can pick. Specifically in Minnesota, we're starting to see legislation and proposed environmental policy changes elsewhere in the United States. What are your initial thoughts on this whole situation and how are you responding to it? What's going on is the DNR is just trying to put a bag limit on how many mushrooms that people can pick in state parks. And, you know, at face value, that really doesn't seem like a lot, uh, like, a, like a huge deal. Uh, the problem is that the Mycological Society and people like myself have been involved historically. We have been involved with the state when decisions are made that are affecting the mushroom community and, and what goes on here. And for whatever reason, we just started getting stonewalled and they would not give us any answers. We just started hearing like things come down through the grapevine that, you know, a crackdown was coming and regulation is coming. And we just do not know why. And they wouldn't tell us and they were refusing to meet with us. Then they... Uh, revoked the diversity permits from the Mycological Society. They ended up kind of giving them back, but there's this all these, I don't know, seem like canary in the mine examples happening that just seem like they, they need attention and we need to have a discussion about this like like we did before. Uh, it's It has been pretty frustrating. A group of us have gotten together, including the president of the Mycological Society, a lobbyist, a few lawyers, and most of the foraging educators in the state and myself, and we're trying to get the word out about this and stop it. So or at least get a seat at the table when these regulations are, are made. That seems to be a really important aspect here is it's not that you're telling them that they should put zero limitations. It's that you need a seat at the table and local activists and people who have been very invested in foraging and conservation efforts, as many mycological societies are, that you're being stonewalled, as you put it. Can you break down quickly what the DNR actually is and what your relationship to them is? Yeah, they're an organization in the state and they're going to handle our state parks. And also they can help create regulations like this, uh, but they're, they should be different from the legislature. And I'm pretty sure, so I'm not as versed in some of the bureaucracy and, and how that works as uh, as I would like to be. But we think that this should be a legislative process. The DNR is just kind of shoving these regulations through and pushing it to a stage of public comment. If it goes to the public comment stage, there's no going back from it. And it's just going to become law and we're going to have to deal with it for like 
15 to 20 years. I think one of the big problems is that we we're seeing and we're seeing this around the country. There is foraging laws around the country are not standardized. It's like every state is different. And a lot of these things are arbitrary, but we're seeing arbitrary non-science based laws go into effect when there's like no evidence of something bad going on. It's just these people don't know anything about mushrooms and they write laws about mushrooms. That, that's why it was good, like when we created the mushroom laws, uh, when Minnesota created their laws around selling mushrooms, selling wild mushrooms, we had a big group that got together with all of us and we advised the state and they took our advice and it worked out just about as well as it could. A great example here is, so I said there might be some other things coming. We think they want to regulate fruits and things too. Uh, NPR picked this up as well as the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal came out last week. NPR was the week before. In the NPR interview, this is just such a good example of kind of the ignorance of the DNR. This is not their specialty. Wild food is not their specialty. But they're trying to regulate it as if it is. They quoted the DNR in this NPR article uh, saying, and I'm I'm paraphrasing a, a little bit here, but basically... The spokesperson from the DNR said, we want to regulate wild blueberries because if all the blueberries are removed, the bears are going to be forced to eat garbage. So, I mean, not everyone may be familiar with wild blueberries. So I'll kind of unpack that a little bit. There's just all kinds of things wrong with it. First of all, bears are used to, bears and like all animals, they're used to variations in their food supply. Uh, two years ago, or in 20, 2019, we had a drought. I didn't pick a single blueberry. This happens, you know, every few years this is going to happen. What do the animals do? They go eat other food. And it's not like a bear is going to make a choice between garbage and blueberries during the season. Bears are going to eat garbage and blueberries. They're going to eat a garbage sundae with blueberries on top because they're bears. They're like they're a giant mouth. They're, they're made to eat. And just simply the fact that humans could never outcompete bears for food. These are, you know, massive animals that the only thing they do every single day is eat. We would need like millions of foragers to go to northern Minnesota and pick, try to pick all the blueberries that we can. This is insane. And no one's, it's illegal in Minnesota to commercially harvest on public land anything. That's totally illegal. Uh, so that's that's one good example. Another person from Ohio sent me an example of DNR talking about mushrooms and making laws. And I thought this one was good, too. So in the Ohio case, the the woman first said the uh, the DNR representative said picking the picking, picking mushrooms on any state land is illegal, which was not true. And then when they were presented with a law that specifically states that it was not true, they said, well, you can cut them, but don't pick them because they're technically a root ball. Was it, was it even me? That, that's, that's a complete nothing burger. Like that doesn't make any sense. What is a root ball? Is it a tree? I didn't know mushrooms had a root ball part. Like I, I wasn't familiar with that. You see? This is, these are just two examples of people making laws about mushrooms and wild food that don't even know what they're talking about. 
That's like, extraordinary. Would, I don't want, yeah. I do not want non-science-based laws in the state that I live in. And when I talk about the non-standardization laws around the country, it's like we, we are seeing these crazy laws go into effect. And what is going to happen, we're going to have a patchwork of like these made-up fun-time foraging laws that just everyone, every state, just like every county in each state just picks some random stuff and just puts it out there like, well, we don't really know. Just, oh, you just can't do it. And they'll just be more, everything will be so restricted. It just makes me, ugh. You know, I wanted to say that that case with the bears and the blueberries is actual, that's a logical fallacy. That's post ergo propter hoc. Like, well, because this happened, then this is going to happen. So this sense of non-science backed laws going into effect that are crafted and enforced by people who are calling mushrooms root balls this is definitely something <laughs> worth worth really raising, cool. you know, raising some awareness around. Now, can you actually punch in on some of these regulations? I noticed in the video you recently posted on your Instagram page where you went into detail a little bit about some of these regulations, the number of ounces or the size bags of each different wild mushroom that were permitted. And in some cases, you might not even be able to fit one of these actual mushrooms into you know the the one ounce or two ounce limit can you punch in a little bit on what some of these regulations might be yeah so just the the one that they want to do is that well the first one and there's probably more coming is they said you can only the one they're they want to put through is you can only pick a gallon bag of mushrooms uh per day and like that's it and i think one of the first things the mycological society president said was well you know, there's, there's a ton of mushrooms that don't even fit in a gallon bag. And furthermore, who measures mushrooms by volume? Like, no mushroom hunter worth their chanterelles is going to measure mushrooms by volume. It's a it's weight. Like, maybe with berries? That makes sense with berries. See, because they don't know anything about mushrooms, they'll just look at, oh, we know that berries, they come in a gallon. Because you take an ice cream pail, that's a gallon. Don't you do the same thing with mushrooms? So it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so that that's really like the only one. I think the, they talked about a gallon limit on blueberries too. Uh, they may have. And I think that might even be okay. I definitely pick more than that when, when I usually go out. But it makes more sense for berries than it does with mushrooms. I think it should all be weight. Uh, you know, like I see, under like I said, under standardization, it just makes for weird, clunky things that are hard to understand and confusing. Sure. Well, clearly I was thinking in terms of dried mushrooms, fresh mushrooms would be quite a bit larger, obviously, than a few ounces. So one other thing I want to, I want to dive into is this idea of the mushroom, the shroom boom, some people call it, has popularized mushrooms and mushroom foraging by extension to a degree that it's probably arguably never been before. You have lots of people interested, which is a good thing, but maybe that's where some of these regulations are coming from. And specifically, I've heard the perspective that people know there's money in it. So if you learn about matsutakis or you learn about other types of wild mushrooms, chanterelles, morels, etc., it almost incentivizes people to come in from out of your area, maybe from out of state even, and 
to pick a lot of these mushrooms for a commercial enterprise. So what are your perspectives on enforcing some sort of regulations around protecting the environment from these more commercial foraging interests versus what you're doing and the Mycological Society are doing, which is clearly different and clearly more conservation-based and more respectful of the local environment? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So for me, this comes down to, this is now, confusingly, this supports having regulations be a little bit different in certain areas because what we're when we're talking about raking matsutake uh that that's one big issue and i heard the dnr uh one of my friends in the group said the dnr in minnesota mentioned that like people taking rakes out in the woods well i am one of the very few people that harvest matsutake in the midwest and those would be the only thing that I could think of that people would harvest with a rake, but you would need big patches. We don't have enough matsutake here to do that. They're extremely rare. Uh, it's, they're like a holy grail here for people that try to hunt them. Most people don't even know that they grow here in the Pacific Northwest. So I don't think there should be anything, any mention of a, a rake like that. It's already illegal to commercial harvest in all of our state land here in Minnesota. Uh, so of course i'm i'm against that um in the pacific northwest that is where the majority of the matsutake come from so that's where they're going to get raped and absolutely i don't want people out in the woods with rakes uh, i know that's done with truffles too in china they rake for truffles and that's why chinese truffles suck because they're not harvesting them when they're ripe it's like giving people a bunch of like unripe crab apples and telling them to you know make cider or something it's going to be so tart it's going to burn your throat so you've alluded to a few future potential issues that you see about like if this gets put into effect then it could also very realistically mean that there are other regulations and policies put in place which arguably are also not going to be backed by science can you elaborate a little bit on some of the concerns of what you and you also mentioned a time frame 15 to 20 years what are some other issues tied to this that if these laws go into effect, that that very well may cause to happen in the near future? Future, a really important future issue, I think, uh, I think it's important to talk about is just equitable land access. And this is a specific thing to, to Minnesota, but you'll have comparable examples around the country, I, I would assume. So the Twin Cities here in Minnesota is the like the cradle of mushroom hunters the most mushroom hunters are in the twin cities now around the twin cities we have a lot of state parks there is like seventy-five thousand acres of state parks open to mushroom hunters within an hour's drive of the twin cities and the mycological society leads forays and does their diversity surveys at any of these parks throughout the year uh, but if it becomes not worthwhile to go to state parks to get mushrooms or pick your fruit or something like that that's going to be seventy-five thousand acres that is now basically not worth going to for the vast majority of foragers in the entire state and then they're going to have to go places the, the nearest other places that are decent will be like at least two hours from the twin cities and that is just i think an unnecessary you know repression of a pastime that that taxpaying citizens should be able to enjoy w within a, a reasonable time frame for people that want don't want to drive so far uh, also for people that are in urban areas that don't have a lot of access or just can't travel that far 
uh, I think it's another problem is we don't know, like, who's going to police this? When we went to a state park, when we took the Wall Street Journal out last week, uh, a couple of the people stopped at the state park office and they asked the, the state, the park rangers, they were just really curious, like, hey, you guys have any problem uh, with borders? And they looked at them like they had no idea what that word even meant. They're like, yeah, people come here, pick blueberries all the time. It's great. They had had, they've had no problems. Um, obviously, I think like the biggest thing is the non-science based uh, laws. And I think it, it kind of encourages this, this paradigm where the state and people think of, they think of our wild places in a preservationist mindset. Like when you go to a park, you have to treat this park like a museum because it's so fragile that if you just touch something, it, you know, it's, it's going to break and shatter. This is absolutely not true. You, you know, it's, it's wrong for us to go pick mushrooms in a state park, but it's okay to bulldoze a lot with a thousand trilliums to build a dollar store. You know, and that's kind of what aboutism, but I, I think it's kind of revenant, uh, relevant. Uh, I also think that it they're ignoring like a good source of potential revenue, and we can get into that, uh, talk about regulations in a little bit. Sure. One thing I'd like to jump into right now is the difference between hunting and hunting mushrooms, because I know that issuing permits and different states, that's a big thing. I grew up in California in San Diego, so hunting wasn't really a thing and neither was foraging, at least at that time. But I do have family in Oregon and elsewhere, and I'm familiar with this permitting system and like a season that's open with hunting. And I wonder about if the DNR and various regulatory bodies who are trying to craft and enact these prospective laws are thinking about it from this broader standpoint of like hunting, foraging for wild foods must be similarly regulated in the way as hunting is. Can you provide some clarity and nuance to this perspective here? Yeah, a little bit. So, I mean, with hunting, hunting and fishing, it, it involves the, something dying, you know, and you're removing something that's going to be gone. And that's not to say that I think it's it's bad. Uh, a lot of these animals need to be regulated because we've created conditions that now they can thrive and become crazy. And like the 12 deer that will be in my yard eating hostas uh, in, in the spring. Um with mushroom hunting, mushroom hunting and picking blueberries. A lot of times mushroom hunting and picking mushrooms gets compared to apples. I, I really like the blueberry example. Um, and it's chanterelle and blueberry season right now. So it's kind of on my mind. Uh, instead of har killing something and removing it, uh, you are going out and just harvesting the fruit of something. And you you don't take a shovel and dig out a blueberry plant and remove it to pick the blueberries, which is what I think that the government seems to think that people are doing when they're going to pick mushrooms. Uh, there was some other wording in there and about like enforcing people to use uh, mesh bags, which drives me nuts too. The mushrooms are going to release like billions of spores before you know, before people are even going to harvest them sometimes once they get to the point of sporulation. It's, again, just examples of uh, like non-science based stuff going on. 
So how would this impact your career? Because again, you're the forager chef and clearly this would have an impact. How is this going to impact your career and people around you as well? Well, with my indigenous friends, we have no idea because they have basically, these things are not well thought out and they don't have anything in there about how it affects treaty lands. So that'll be interesting to find out. You know, I would, it wouldn't affect me. It, like my bottom line or anything. It's not like I, I don't make, uh, I don't, I rarely do events at state parks. I think, I think that if we do events at state parks, the, you should, you know, people should be getting permits, uh, which they should be. Sometimes people don't. Um, for me, it's more of just like it, us needing to be heard when these laws are made uh, because we have been in the past and I just don't understand. I don't want this to snowball into something that, as it stands, a gallon bag limit. The only thing that I see that's wrong with that is it needs to be like five pounds. My friends in the Mycological Society would disagree with me on that, and a lot of them think it should be much larger. But that's comparable to some other states like in Oregon, where you know a lot of commercial mushrooms come out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, my, my fear is that it snowballs and it becomes into bigger things and more things, and it just becomes this complex, like Byzantine thing to, to navigate arbitrary stuff that doesn't make any sense. Well, that's an interesting point you brought up about the indigenous tribes. Are they invited to a seat at the table as far as you know, or are they just as left in the dark as everybody else? No one has reached out to contact them. We have been working uh, with my friend, Sean Sherman. Uh, he's got a well-known restaurant. He got best restaurant, uh, won the James Beard for best restaurant in the United States uh, last year. Cool. And Sean Sherman, we've been talking with him. He's on board. And my friend Linda Black Elk is a well-known Native American advocate, uh, an activist. And she, she's she been involved, too. So because the, they're, they're curious, too. They want to know, oh, so how, how, would affect, how would it affect the, the land that uh, the, the treaty lands and, and what goes on with that? Like, I don't think the DNR has even thought of that at all. And it's going to be something that they, they have to speak to. Right on. OK, so moving forward, like let's talk about the path ahead, because obviously you're quite frustrated for good reason. And you're really just asking to be involved in this decision making process and to have your input valued and factored into any decisions that get made. So do you have a plan of action for the next couple of weeks or months ahead for yourself and the Mycological Society and any other stakeholders who want to be heard and are insisting that your feedback is valued and your input is valued and heard? Uh, yeah, I, I'm only one person uh, in this larger group. So there's a lot of things going on. I have to have people call me and update me. Uh, more meetings, more calls with representatives and trying to get out the word as much as we can. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of other things that people are, are discussing about putting together. I, I'm moving right now, getting ready to move. So I'm, I'm squeezing everything in where I can. The word you used, Byzantine, I think is a great descriptor for some of this bureaucratic uh, business that's going down. That's something that endlessly frustrates me too. And it's like that, I think it was an Albert Camus book uh, who wrote The Stranger. It's that level of bureaucracy, like an impenetrable Byzantine, very complex and unnecessary and arbitrary non-science-backed approach to creating regulations. And I think everybody should be concerned about that, not just with foraging, but just like 
in general, right? And, and citizens should be heard, especially when you have a track record and a trajectory that you've been working in this area extensively and in many ways have been stewards and custodians of best practices. So it makes zero sense to stonewall the Mycological Society. And I've been a member of the San Diego Mycological Society and I know how rich the body of knowledge, the corpus that exists and the experience and the wisdom in groups like this. So I really wish that there is some level of diplomatic success that happens as you continue to to navigate this process that's being rolled out. So I think we kind of hit a sweet spot here and I'd love to leave you the last few minutes to share any parting messages you want with the audience about why this is important, about what they can do. Maybe somebody in the audience wants to help and join. join. You know, we've got listeners in the Midwest for sure. Yeah, thanks. So... Well, on my on my website, there's a there's a letter that we have. We have a template because like even if you're not in Minnesota, this can happen in your state. This it probably is already we we're seeing more laws like this come out all over the place. Uh, Milwaukee County just outlawed mushroom picking in every single county park. Uh, There's other similar ones in Illinois uh, and, and Michigan. So there's a letter on my on my website, and I can get, I'll give you the uh, the address to that, where you just go in, you fill in the blanks, and then with it, there's some links um, that we have that are for like Minnesota representatives. You have, you'd have to go and find basically the state equivalent that you have, but that could be that alone. We had our lobbyists work on that and and put that together. Uh, that could be helpful to anyone who is in a state where similar things seem to be happening to them. Uh, also, you can just contact me, and we have other documents like the letter that we put together that we've sent to the governor that they did res- respond to and then eventually now put us back said, no, you just need to go meet with the DNR. We're not going to meet with you. We, we just need to get the attention of, of the governor. Uh, I think I think some of my final thoughts are, like, if you know about Scandinavia, I, I love how Scandinavia – has their mentality on this i would love to see that something like that adopted you know maybe it would take maybe it's not even possible but they have something called every man's right and uh basically what that is is you could go out even onto private land now i'm not necessarily saying that everyone should be able to go out on private land and pick whatever they want but they can over there and this is enshrined in their constitution you know, as like as a constitutional right, like our wild places are much more than a museum and they can be an interactive teaching environment, you know, really open to anyone and available to anyone. I think everyone should be able to feel the excitement of, you know, picking their first chanterelle or eating and harvesting their whole their first batch of wild blueberries. I just think there's a lot that people can learn and I'm so excited to see, I don't know what you call the mushroom, uh, the increase in mushrooming. There, there was a term for it. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited for that because I feel like I've been in the mushroom community for a, for a long time now, over 10 years. And I've been seeing, just seeing it grow has been just like crazy. Like watching a mushroom grow. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I, I don't know. I, I think that whatever happens will, will be okay eventually. But I'm, I'm excited to see what the future holds, and I'm so, I'm so grateful for the mushroom community. 
Same, absolutely. So I realize I have to ask you, since you do pick chanterelles and morels and all kinds of other stuff, what are some of the favorite dishes that you prepare with wild mushrooms? We'll end on a high note here. Oh, okay. Well, chanterelle season, probably just like chanterelles on toast. Uh, my grandma's recipe for fried morels. Chicken of the woods with lemon cream, either like tossed with a little pasta or put on top of candy black trumpets. And candy cap. Candy cap flan and caramels. Like they're like tied. Oh, and matsutake miso soup. So good. I haven't tried half of those. I do love chanterelles and a pot pie. You know, chanterelle chicken pot pie is Yum. lovely. Chicken of the woods is fantastic. You know, we don't have a great foraging environment, to be honest. We have like jack-o'-lantern mushrooms and you'll find some reishi and a few other ones, but we certainly don't have matsutakis and morels and things like that, as far as I'm aware in San Diego, where I'm from. But I, I am currently in the south of Mexico and it's rainy season and the funga is abundant nice. right now. So it is lovely. But you just name dropped a few good ones that I'm gonna have to investigate. With flan, that sounds like a really good, interesting combo. And that's something that I've been excited to learn about. I've got a friend here who does wild mushroom desserts. So we've done like chanterelle chocolates and cupcakes and things like that and like that's not immediately what comes to mind when I when most people think of preparing mushrooms you think of it as a more like savory dish or something but the idea that you can make mushroom cookies and mushroom cakes is like kind of an awesome frontier so flan is totally something I'm going to look into here right on Alan Burgo thanks again man I appreciate you coming on and I will blast this as far and wide as possible I think it's a super important topic of conversation as you alluded to earlier, where would this go if we allow non-science-backed decisions to be made and enforced regarding a citizen's right to nature? And that's something definitely worth talking about and focusing on in the mushroom community and beyond. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Dennis. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com, or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.